Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be taking a look at some recent stories regarding election security, given that the midterm elections in the US are right around the corner. We'll also be talking about the Emotet botnet, which has broadened its activities and begun stealing emails from infected users. How exposed Docker APIs are being hijacked to perform cryptojacking operations. And how one government worker managed to compromise his entire organization's network by visiting adult websites. But first, we published some research this week on the Samsam ransomware group. Dick, you were involved in working on this, so maybe you could tell us a bit more. First of all, who are Samsam? Yes, uh, so as you say, um, Samsam is a ransomware group, but they differ a lot from most of the ransomware operations. So while the majority of ransomware families are spread indiscriminately, usually via spam emails or exploit kits, Samsam is used in a very targeted fashion. Uh, Samsung's modus operandi, so to speak, is to gain access to an organization's network and then spend some time performing reconnaissance by mapping out the network and then they try and encrypt as many computers as possible and present the organization with one single ransom demand. So the attackers, they've been known to uh, offer to decrypt all computers for one large set ransom and or offer to decrypt individual machines for a lower fee. And in many cases, the ransom demands can run to about tens of thousands of dollars to decrypt all affected computers. Now, if it's successful, these attacks can have a devastating impact on um, organizations, seriously disrupting their operations. They can destroy business critical information and lead to massive cleanup costs. Wow, so pretty serious. And there's been a number of very high profile attacks recently involving um, this Samsung group, hasn't there? Yes, there has. Uh, For example, in February, the Colorado Department of Transportation in the US was hit. Uh, It forced the agency to shut down more than 2000 employee computers while it investigated and cleaned up the attack. And uh, six weeks later, uh, the department was only back operating at about 80% functionality and they'd already estimated the cleanup costs were going to be about $1.5 million. But probably the biggest attack we know about to date was the one that came in March against the city of Atlanta. That saw more than a third of the 424 applications used by the city being knocked offline or disabled by the attack. Um, The city's attorney's office lost 71 out of 77 of its computers as well as decades of legal documents and the police department even lost all of its dash cam recordings. So the most recent estimate of the cleanup costs uh, there in Atlanta, that runs to in excess of $10 million at the moment. Oh wow, yikes. And um, what have we uncovered in our new Samsung research? Yes, uh, well essentially we're providing an update on the group's activities. Um, Our telemetry shows evidence of attacks against 67 different organisations to to date this year. Um, We found that the vast majority of Samsung's targets are located in the US. Of the 67 organisations targeted this year so far, 56 were in the US. We also saw a small number of attacks uh, in places like Portugal, France, Australia. Ireland and Israel. Um, Samsung targeted organizations across a wide range of sectors, but healthcare was by far the most uh, heavily um, hit, accounting for 24% of attacks. 
and that was followed by banking and finance, building and construction, insurance, utilities and energy, manufacturing, education, the public sector and government. So a kind of a broad spread of sectors beyond that, but healthcare was definitely the, the most heavily hit. And why was that, do we know, or can we speculate? Yeah, why exactly healthcare was a particular focus remains unknown. The attackers might believe that healthcare organisations are easier to infect, or they may just believe that these organisations are more likely to pay the ransom. Of course, yeah, I mean, it will be very important infrastructure. And, I mean, how exactly do Samsung carry out these attacks? How do they manage to, you know, get onto so many computers in the targeted organisations? Yeah, these attacks, they actually take a lot of work and some amount of skill on the part of the attackers. Samsung makes extensive use of living off the land tactics, which is something we've spoken about before in this podcast, which is the use of things like operating system features or legitimate network administration tools to compromise victims' networks. So, for example, in one attack we took a look at, it began when the attackers downloaded several hacking tools onto one computer in a targeted organization. Then 10 minutes later, they began running scripts in order to identify and scan other computers on the network. They then used PSinfo, which is a Microsoft sysinternals tool, so a legitimate tool that allows um, the user to gather information about other computers on the network. This allowed them to identify software that was installed on these computers, and they may be doing this to identify computers with business critical files so they could be encrypted for ransom. The attackers then used a freely available hacking tool called Mimikatz against selected computers to steal passwords, obviously to kind of broaden their reach across the network. They then loaded uh, Samsung onto the initial computer, and interestingly, they loaded up two different versions uh, of the ransomware on that computer. And we think that they used two versions in order to have an alternative at hand in case one of them was detected and flagged by security software. So an hour after this, the attackers began executing Samsung on multiple computers across the organization's network. And they did this by using PSExec, which is yet another um, sysinternals tool, which is used for executing processes on other systems. And five hours later, just under 250 computers on that network had been encrypted. Wow, that is pretty serious. And I suppose what can organizations do then to help protect, protect themselves from Samsung attacks? Well, there's a few steps you can take Regularly backing up of uh, critical information is absolutely crucial because if computers do get encrypted, you can potentially restore them from backups. However, um, people need to be aware that backing up alone isn't sufficient since groups like Samsung have been known to attempt to delete or encrypt backups. So that means you need to take every precaution possible to prevent them from gaining access to your network in the first place. So to do that, you need to adopt a multi-layered approach to security in order to ensure that any point of failure is mitigated by other defensive practices. So that should include not only regularly patching software vulnerabilities, which could be potentially exploited to gain access to a network, but also using multiple overlapping and I suppose mutually supportive defensive systems to guard against single point of failure in any specific technology. So that could include uh, regularly updated firewalls as well as gateway antivirus, intrusion detection and prevention systems and web security gatework solutions throughout the network. 
It's also um, worth calling out our new uh, target attack analytics tool, which we've spoken a couple of times before, because that's able to identify and flag living off the land activity associated with targeted attacks like Sam Sam. Oh, cool, great. Good advice there. Uh, so, yeah, thanks. <laughs> now, I'm all talked out about Sam Sam, so I think we should maybe move on to our next topic. Um, we uh, have talked a bit about uh, crypto jacking attacks on this uh, podcast before, and it seems like uh, attackers are once again uh, expanding their target list and they're now going after Docker images. Candid, would you be able to tell us more about how this attack works? Yeah, sure. I mean, crypto mining attacks are kind of an evergreen, right? As you said, we've talked about them before. And although the price of the Monero crypto coin has actually dropped down to just $100 per coin, we still see thousands of crypto checking attacks each day. So it's still there. And I guess no surprise that the attackers are actually trying to infect as many unprotected systems as possible, because that's kind of the way to maximize their profits. But so a while ago, many Redis, which is kind of a database system, were attacked through their interface, which is exposed over TCP port 6379. And the attackers use kind of an old vulnerability that allows an arbitrary file upload to upload their own malicious script. And of course, this allowed them to plant a simple Python script, which would then download the final payload from the well-known cut and paste website, Pastebin. And... I guess no surprise in that case, the final payload was actually a Monero crypto coin mining malware. So once on the system, the compromised system, of course, they did the usual things that you would expect, like setting up a persistence with a cron job, killing any competing mining processes so they get all the CPU power for themselves, and starting to scan for other vulnerable systems that they probably could infect as well. And they actually went to quite some extent as some variants downloaded the tool called MassScan, which allowed them then to scan the whole IPv4 internet for the open port of Redis database systems, which of course is quite noisy and can easily be detected. But others were a bit more stealthy and simply downloaded a list of pre-scanned targets, which the author uploaded to a image site before. And Probably should point out, of course, that's not restricted to Redis uh, systems on its own, right? The same malware also goes after Apache ActiveMQ web applications with a similar upload vulnerability, which is uh, known for those systems as well. And I guess in general, we can say that any IoT system, specifically now with the MQTT service, which stands for uh, Message Queuing Telemetry Transport Protocol, have been in focus for many researchers this year, and unfortunately also for attackers, as any misconfigured server can potentially leak a lot of information around the IoT systems and maybe even provide access to the attackers. And if we look at the Shodan search engine, they list about a little more than 30,000 misconfigured MQTT servers with no password at all exposed to the internet, which of course is an easy attack tool for cyber criminals. Okay, so we have lots of computers that are not well protected and are getting compromised. I guess that's uh, not a surprise, but where does Docker come into play in this? Yeah, good point. I probably should get back to Docker. So Docker is, or let's say Docker containers are like software packages or virtual images, right? 
These containers can be pre-configured with some software and then deployed where needed. And to deploy those containers, you can use the Docker Engine uh, API, which is a RESTful API, which is then used to create a new system and spin it up. And unfortunately, similar as to all the other systems that we just talked about, there are many misconfigured Docker Engine instances uh, exposed to the internet. So they expose their API to anyone. And if the Docker Engine is reachable from the internet and not properly secured, then anyone can actually deploy their own container and activate them. And this is exactly what happened here. So it's happening on a grand scale at the moment. Attackers create their own containers with preloaded coin mining software and then use the exposed Docker or Kubernetes systems to deploy and run them. Um, so I guess it's a good idea to verify your configuration if you use uh, Docker systems or Kubernetes and make sure that all your sys uh, systems and servers actually are secured and maybe even ensure that only trusted and signed container images can be run in your environment. In addition, you might also want to scan those containers for malware, as there are a lot of instances as well, and monitor for any heavy resource uh, intensive process like mining usually is. But of course, Semantic actually has some detections in place for the malware and the used exploits. Okay, that's um, some good uh, advice there. Uh, thanks, Candid. Um, let's move on to politics, because um, with the midterm elections less than one week away, it's no surprise that we've seen a lot of election-related security stories in the last week. Bridget, do you want to tell us about some of these? Yeah, sure. So, as you say, uh, we've seen a number of different stories published um, in this election security area in the last few days, even. Um, just this week, Bitdefender published some research that it has done into the prevalence of typo-squatted domains. And typo-squatted domains um, basically are fake domains that look like legitimate website addresses. Often they might only have one letter of difference from a legitimate domain. And the bit, uh, these domains have been registered for midterm election candidates um, in some of the so-called battleground states. So those are the domains that Bitdefender was looking at. And it found that for nearly all of the candidates in these states, there were, was at least um, one fake typo squatted domain registered, with in some cases um, candidates having as many as six fake domains that were spoofing their own campaign website. And the motivations of the people setting up these fake domains seem to vary from intending to hijack the candidate's campaign with misinformation, redirecting visitors to the website maybe of the candidate's rivals, or even in some cases um, exposing site visitors to malware. And um, this report somewhat links to another report that was published last week, which found that a lot of election-related websites and government websites in the US states were using top-level domains such as .com or .net rather than using .gov. And this is important because domain names that use .gov um, must pass a US federal government validation process to confirm that they're legitimate and that the website in question truly belongs to an official government entity and that's not something that's required for a .com address um, for example so that the .com addresses can be purchased by anyone hence making them much easier to spoof um, and this report which was from McAfee found that the majority of county sites it looked at did not have a .gov top level domain and it also found that many of these sites also didn't use SSL and obviously SSL certs you know encrypt personal information that might be sent uh, by voters that voters might share on these websites. 
And, you know, it's something you'd hope any site that you were sharing personal information with would have. But it was, but um, this report found it was not the case with a lot of these government sites. So some quite concerning findings there, really. Um, and Symantec actually launched a free service last month for candidates and political campaigns that were involved in the midterms. Um, and it was a website spoofing detection system that alerts candidates and political campaigns when someone registers a domain using various names and brands that will be associated with uh, their particular political figure or campaign or agency. So very much just like the activity that we're after outlining. Um, and it's a service that's built on Project Dolphin, which is an AI semantic developed to detect spoof websites. So if anyone is interested in that service, they can find out more um, by visiting the semantic website, semantic.com forward slash solutions forward slash election hyphen security. Okay, lots of information there, Bridget. Thanks. And, um, you know, uh, worth mentioning Project Dolphin, all right, because it's a really useful tool for uh, detecting spoof websites. So have we seen anything else of interest happening in this area? Yeah, well, I mean, social media is also an area, obviously, that come in for a lot of scrutiny following the 2016 elections. So in a somewhat related move, Facebook also announced last week that it had removed from its platform H2 pages, groups and accounts that it says originated in, in Iran and were engaged in what Facebook described as coordination in authentic behaviour, targeted specifically at people in the US and the UK. Uh, so Facebook said the people behind this activity typically pretended to be US or sometimes UK citizens and they posted about politically charged topics such as race relations, opposition to um, US President Donald Trump as immigration and they also posted about currently um, trending topics like the recent Brett Kavanaugh hearings in the US for example and these removed pages had names like um, Thirst for Truth and Wake Up America with Facebook saying in the statement that the content on the pages appear consistent with what they've seen in other major operations like this, which is what which is what I was basically aiming to promote division among the users of the site. Um, and Facebook said it had first detected this activity about a week before it took this move to remove the accounts, and that it had identified some overlap with these accounts and with other pages that it removed from the platform in August, which had also linked to actors in Iran. And Facebook said the activity comprised of um, 30 pages on Facebook, 33 Facebook individual accounts, and then three Facebook groups. And there were also 16 accounts on Instagram, which of course is um, owned by Facebook. And it further said that more than 1 million um, Facebook users had followed at least one of the pages that have been taken down. It also said that the people behind those accounts had also purchased some ad, uh, two ads on Facebook over the period in which they were active and that they used US and Canadian dollars um, to do that. We actually published a blog last week about Twitter bots, which I think we mentioned on last week's um, podcast. And on that blog, we gave some tips on how you might spot if you're interacting with a bot or a fake account um, on Twitter. And you can find that in our election security blog stream at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash election hyphen security. And there's loads of other blogs there as well that might be of interest to people in the next few days in the run up to the elections. Yeah, there's uh, lots of inf- interesting material on there. Um, thank you, Bridget. Um, one of the other things we wanted to discuss today um, involves the Emotet Trojan, which was something we published our own research on earlier on this year. There's been some developments regarding Emotet this week with the news that it is now collecting emails from infected computers. Candid, uh, do you know more about this newest twist? Yeah, I mean... 
the Imotet or um, the Melee group, which is behind the Imotet Trojan, they're not new to the game, right? Uh, we saw them in 2014 when it started as a classical financial Trojan, and then they changed their operation a few times, and now they're kind of a threat distributor for various malware. And one of Imotet's characteristics is that it's a self-spreading worm, so it has the capability of spreading laterally in an environment. And for example, it can do that by brute forcing passwords in the local network, which of course can generate a lot of headaches for organizations because that also means a lot of user accounts will get locked out due to too many false logins. So that's one easy way to spot it. But this is just one of the many modules that the malware can use. And we've seen other modules, like for example, the threat can have a spam module for sending out more infected emails. They have a DDoS module for flooding the network. They have a password stealer, which is primarily focused on gathering uh, email credentials for yet again sending other email uh, spam out. And in the past, we've seen that the threat actually checks the compromised computers for any email uh, PST files or even using the Outlook messaging API to scan for stored emails. So I guess the good news is that's only working for Outlook. So if you're using any Gmail or webmail, then you will be safe on that one. But any emails that the threat will find, they would go through it, scan for any sender or receiving email address, extract them, and then send them back to the author, probably in order to send more spam emails, right? But the new twist now is that there have been reports that, I guess, just in time for Halloween, the threat actually has a new module, which is kind of an expansion of the email information gathering function. So this time, it's all emails of the last six months, which are scanned and analyzed. But in addition to the classical email address, um, as before, they also extract the subject line of every email that they look at and also the first 16K of the body text. All of this information is then copied to a temporary file and exfiltrated back to the command and control server. So, I mean, this could lead to thousands and thousands of email addresses being uh, sent back and probably could be used for further personalized spam emails in the future. Wow, that sounds like a massive amount of data. And these emails might even contain other sensitive information, which is pretty concerning, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the scary part for Halloween. Um, it's like an espionage attack, right? We, we can only speculate, of course, what exactly will be done with the gathered data. And we assume that the primary use is most likely to generate more convincing spam emails for the future. But it could well be that their melee group behind the Amatet Trojan is checking for any password that you might have received in emails or sent in email, maybe serial keys for products and software, or any other information that they might use for, for their own profits, right? I mean, they could sell the information, they could use it for blackmailing or for business email compromise scams. So it's, it's definitely scary. We don't know yet, uh, but we'll definitely keep an eye open. Yeah, a lot of things to worry about there. Um, now, finally, um, we have just one more item, which is a cautionary tale on why you shouldn't use your work laptop to look at pornography. <laughs> yeah, especially if you work for the government. Uh, <laughs> um, so this story stems from a report that was published uh, by the US Department of the Interior earlier this month. 
um, which was investigating suspicious activity on the network of the US Geological Survey offices. So malware had been found um, on the network during an IT audit and following an investigation, the source of the malicious software was traced to a single unnamed employee of the Geological Survey office who reportedly used a government-issued computer to visit 9,000 adult pornography websites. 9,000. 9,000. Did he get any work done at all? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and unsurprisingly, uh, many of these pages were linked to Russian websites that contained malware, which was ultimately downloaded uh, to the employee's computer and then obviously um, was able to infiltrate the network of the US Geological Survey. Um, the investigation also found that the employee, the employee saved a lot of the pornographic material to an unauthorized USB drive and also to a personal Android cell phone, both of which were connected to the government computer, which was also against the agency protocols. And uh, unsurprisingly, his cell phone was also infected with malware from that activity. Um, so according to this report, uh, the employee in question did attend security training um, prior to the detection of, uh, detection of his um, misdeeds. And each of those years, he signed a statement saying that he understood the rules and he would abide by them. Um, but obviously this didn't happen and those rules did explicitly prohibit employees from using government issued devices to view pornography as well as forbidding them from connecting personal USB devices or cell phones to government issued devices. Um, so he really didn't follow any of the rules it seems. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly the report says that the individual in question is no longer employed by yeah. the agency. <laughs> Least surprising news yeah, ever. Right. Not very surprising. Okay, um, on that note, that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, if you've been enjoying our podcast, uh, don't for, forget to subscribe. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or at Medium at medium.com forward slash Threat hyphen Intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, including our new research on Samsam and the aforementioned Emotet research, check out our blog, which can be found out at uh, semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again next week when we'll be once again looking at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.